Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. When a king makes a speech, mostly people listen. In the New Testament book of Matthew, there are a number of Jesus' speeches recorded during which he shares some life-changing insights and he makes reference several times to the need for his words to make an impression on our hearts. Tonight is the third in a five-part series titled The King's Speech. Tonight, Dr Corbett is in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, for the discovery of unimaginable treasures. And here's what we see in this series of, of speeches that Jesus gives to a people who are phenomenally poor, really oppressed. We saw at the end of chapter 12 that Jesus was, was in a house and he was just there having a, a bit of a, a teaching moment with some people and then, then it says early in the morning his mother and brothers and sisters came to the door. We read this at the end of chapter 12. And someone says to Jesus as he is seated in the house, oh, your, your mother's here and your brothers and sisters are here. And I think Mark names four of the brothers and, and, and then Jesus says, Who are my, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Who's my sisters? Those who hear what I say and do it. Now, this is really strange because as we think in terms of treasure, who did Jesus treasure? There's no doubt he treasured his mother. But here he is saying this, what I am doing right now and what I'm talking about right now is far more important than my relationship with my mother. Now that might sound shocking to some. And I, I kind of hope it does so that you get the gravity of what Jesus is doing here. And so from this moment, it says he gets up out of the house and he walks down to the seaside. In other words, who did he just walk past? He just got up out of the house and walked past his mother and his brothers and sisters who had come to see him. And he goes down to the seaside and he's sitting by the seaside thinking that maybe those in the house will come. But word quickly spreads. It's not just those in the house. It's those in the house who go, you know, I don't, no email, no text messages. So however they did it, like beyond some of our imagination, isn't it? How you communicate without text message or email. They probably don't throw anything at me, but they probably went and spoke to people face to face. Just a thought. And as they did it, soon you've got thousands, some 5,000 people down by the seaside. And Jesus can't sit on the, on the slope anymore. <clears throat> he gets up and goes over to a boat and just pushes slightly out to shore. And he sits down in the boat, the posture of a teacher, which was the posture of a king seated on a throne about to declare something. And this is what he's declaring. And he declares the parable of the sower he then de declares the parable of the weeds and tares, the, the wheat and tares, weeds and the wheat. And then in there, he, he says, oh, by the way, I'm talking about my kingdom. Let me give you another parable of what I expect. This is what my kingdom is going to look like. And if you just want to kind of jump in, as we're, we're looking at, we're going to be looking over at verses 40 four to 46 in a moment but before we get there let's look at verse 31 down to verse 33 and this this gives us Jesus expectation for his kingdom and can I tell you the church of Jesus Christ is his physical manifestation of his kingdom 
The church of Jesus Christ is a colony of the kingdom. This is, the, the church is not, it's not just a oh, whatever. No, th- this is what Jesus walked past his mother to describe. This is what Jesus gave seven speeches just before he's taken away. This is, this is not long before he's taken away and crucified. And he said, these are seven things you need to know about what I'm doing. So church, so don't wake up in the morning and think, should I go to church or not go to church? As Keith Green eloquently said, Jesus came to earth, died on the cross and rose from the dead. And sometimes we can't even get out of bed to go to church to honour him for that. So this is really, really important. Really important. This is what he expected would happen. I haven't got any of these Bible verses on the screen. You need to actually look at whatever you've got as a Bible. So we're in verse 31. And he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is, according to verse 32, the smallest of all seeds... But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing right now seems to the whole world like a little insignificant mustard seed. But it's going to fill the earth. And he's actually picking up on the language of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel prophesied this, Daniel said that God would send a little stone to earth and that stone would become a great rock and fill the whole earth. And Jesus is picking up on some of that imagery here. He expects that his church will extend all around the world to every people group, every language group, every region on the planet should be within reach of a church. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, if you, if you haven't memorised it, it's a great glimpse of the end. Then I saw a multitude that no one could number. People from every tribe, nation and tongue holding palm branches in their hand declaring before the throne, Hosanna to the Lamb. It's a picture right at the end. Jesus will have the church that he sees. Every people, every nation, every tribe and every tongue will be touched by his kingdom. It's a pretty audacious plan. And I hope we're a part of it. The second thing he said here to give us an idea of his expectation is verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And it's that little bit that you put in to the, to the dough and it causes it to rise. You, you just, or it causes it to, you know, depending on how much you put in. The point is infiltration. Jesus says, those who enter into my kingdom will infiltrate every segment and sector of society for me. And ultimately, I will flavour the whole world with my kingdom. So can I just give you a little perspective adjustment here, please? Because there are some people who say things like this. Oh, 
The world is getting so bad. The world is getting so dark and so terrible. Oh, we're so losing. We are losing this fight. We are seeing so many, like so many churches empty on a Sunday. And that may be the case. And can I say that's horrible, it's pathetic, and it's disgraceful, by the way. But you know what? In other parts of the world, Christianity is growing faster than the birth rate of those countries. There are the numbers of Muslims who came to Christ this year, the numbers are staggering. And it's almost all supernatural credit. In other words, they're, they're seeing dreams, they're having visions. But the numbers, it's something like 20 million people in the Middle East who were Muslims have become Christians over the course of this year. Missiologists, people who study these sorts of things, estimate that the largest Islamic nation on the face of the planet, which is, someone tell me, where's Tracy Brown Descray? Where are you, Tracy? What's the largest Islamic country on the face of the earth, please, Tracy? Indonesia, estimates now are that within, within a very short few years, there will be so many people converting out of Islam into Christianity, it will no longer be the largest Islamic nation and may well, within some of our lifetimes, no longer be an Islamic nation. There are so many churches being planted and people becoming Christians. This is what Jesus foretold with these two parables. His kingdom would infiltrate. Now, this is what I, I observe. That whenever the kingdom of God advances, the enemy tries to stop the advance. So are we seeing, are we seeing hostility and resistance to the expansion of the kingdom in some of these places? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> so let's not become so negative that we think Christ is not still on the throne. And here's a question I asked a group of year 11s who I asked this question to. Do you think the world is getting more evil? And in the back of my mind are these two parables that Jesus said, this is my kingdom, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to plan it small and it's going to end up big. I'm going to take a little bit of leaven, I'm going to infiltrate it into the world and it will spread through the whole world. My influence will radiate around the globe. And I asked these year 11 students and I said, is the world getting darker and more evil? And every one of them said, yes, this world is a horrible place. I said, fine, just simply give me, give me one indication of when you would rather live on this planet than today. Because by your reasoning, if it's getting more and more darker and more and more evil, the more we go back in time, the brighter, the happier, the glorious it is. And you don't have to think very hard to realise that's not true. People did horrible things to each other. It reminds me of the atheist who was in a public gathering who was stating his case for atheism and how Christians have ruined cultures. By the way, there's many, many Aboriginal Australians who will tell you Jesus Christ is our Lord. And they don't see any incompatibility with being a first Australian and a follower of Christ. Every tribe, every nation, Revelation 7, 9 says. And this missiologist was, was giving this lecture and saying, you know, how Christians have gone in and ruined cultures. And one man, obviously, of a Pacific Island sort of complexion, stood up and said, excuse me, sir, um, I, I hear what you're saying, how Christianity has ruined everything. But if you had come to our island... 150 years ago, my ancestors would have eaten you. 
Now most of my island declares that Jesus Christ is their Lord and we won't eat you, we'll welcome you even though you're saying what you're saying. How has Christianity ruined our island? Much rather have my hand shaken than my hand eaten. I just, just... Jesus has influenced parts of the world where we, we as Christians, we live, in a, we live in a very Christianized society and we hardly recognize it. Things like democracy is foundationally a Christian idea. It says every person has value. Every person has inherent worth. Where did that idea come from? Because before 0 or 30 AD, that idea was not in the world. You've only got to look at some of the, the, the ancient documentaries and how people were treated for, for the first few hundred years after Christianity and how Christianity slowly turned that around. And even up until now, Christians are working hard to bring the message of Jesus Christ about how valuable people are to this world, which is why slavery, and in particular, sex slavery, is so abhorrent. Which is why, men, pornography is disgraceful. Because it completely, it's satanic. It just completely undermines what God has done through Christ for the value of not just people, but women in particular. So now we come to these two parables. And both of these two parables, we're going to be looking at just a few verses. We're looking at verse 44, one parable in one verse. And we're going to look at verses 45 and 46. And in these two parables, they both come at how you enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Christ is building from two perspectives. How do you get in? You see, here's the, the thing underlying this, is that you might think you're right. You might think you have peace with God. You might think that if you were to die now, this was to be your last heartbeat, your spirit, your soul would leave your body instantly and you would be in the presence of God, standing before him to judge you. And you may think he'll just go, oh, Come on in, I'll be waiting for you. Come on in. And before we can make that assumption, we need, we need to pay very careful attention to what Jesus said because what he had to say is of, not to use the, the term at all inappropriately, it is of infinite importance. So here's how the king brings subjects into his kingdom. The first one, verse 45, let's read it together. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now under Jewish law, unlike Australian law, by the way, <laughs> If there is wealth in your ground that you've bought, it's yours. When we bought uh, some land, one of the things, one of the little tiny little fine print things is, oh, by the way, if there's ever anything valuable found under your ground, it's not yours. But in Jewish times, they said, if you own the ground and there's something in there, it's yours. And so that's why this man has sold everything. Now, here's, this is what Jesus is saying. 
When you discover me and what I'm about, you will, you will sell or give up everything to have me. That's one way of looking at it. Hidden treasure. And I guess if we look at it like that, that's exactly right. We can see that. We can see that Jesus is saying, I am the treasure. You know, and part of my thinking is, this is probably a young man, he's only 33 or so, and he's grown up in a house where his mum literally hid treasure and possibly the thought was, you know, what, what would ever happen if anyone ever came through our house, would they find this? And here's this picture that he's giving that somehow treasure got in a field and somehow someone found it. So what, what, what do we have here? Someone's entering into the kingdom almost by accident. They've stumbled upon it. And this is, this is a, a part of how people come to know Christ. Many people this day will wake up with no intention of life change, no intention of getting religious, no intention of ever becoming a Christian. And by the end of today, they will be followers of Christ. They stubbed their toe on a chunk of gold and they realised... Oh, I don't want, if, if I sell everything I have and buy this patch of dirt, that's mine. And Jesus is saying, to follow me, you may stumble upon me by accident, you may think. <laughs> and when you recognise the value of what I'm offering you, everything else will pale into insignificance. And you will sell everything you have just to have me and I will satisfy every longing of your soul and as we heard Ebony say you know you put Christ first and he he honors you in the most practical ways food and drink and shelter and clothing and money to live he will he will honor you Kim and I are testament to that the other parable he told them will marry them up is the parable of great, the pearl of great price. The parable of the pearl of great price. Let's read that. It's in verse 45 and verse 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's amazing. Uh, the reason I find it's amazing, if he's a merchant of pearls, he's probably got a pearl collection. He probably sold his entire pearl collection to get this pearl. Wow. He's looking for it. He's searching for it. He knows it must be out there somewhere. And that is the quest that many people are on today. They know there's got to be meaning to life. They know that this can't just be a random coalition of molecules just bouncing around inside human skeletal systems. That can't be all my life is about. They know there's something more to life. They've attended a funeral and they felt it. You attend a funeral, there's just this overwhelming sense that can't be. This person's life can't be over. There's got just this a sense. And for many people, they just don't want to face it. But in those quiet moments of reflection, 
we know there's more to life than what we can see, touch, taste and feel. Kim and I were with someone a few weeks ago and she said she, uh, she's a Christian and she was having uh, interaction with another school mum. And the school mum said something to her about these issues, about life. A young mum who just made the comment, I just can't help but think, there's got to be more to this thing than just going through the motions every day and one day you die. And this lady had the privilege of saying, there is, and I've found it. Would you like, would you like to find it too? And she's, they didn't have much time then, and the lady said, I would love to. So she's just going to take her Bible, go and have coffee with her, and start to read some of these things that we're reading together right now. And just going to ask questions and just talk about it. Just going to ask the questions and just talk about it. And eventually, because she's seeking, like the man, the merchant, looking for the pearl of great price, she'll find it. As soon as this lady starts to hold up, you know, takes the thing off, and there's the pearl. She'll see it. She will. And this is the promise Jesus made. If you seek, you will find. And that's the second way people come into the kingdom. Some come in by seemingly accident. Maybe that was you. Maybe you started off your day and Jesus just totally came in and messed it up. And he just interrupted your life. You were happy riding on your horse to Damascus and he just knocked you off. That was the Apostle Paul's story. And for some of us, that's our story. Then there are others where, where Jesus, the leaven gets in and he begins to put this sense in us. There's got to be more to life and we begin to sense that. So here's, here's what we see. In both stories, the kingdom is of infinite value. There's nothing. that can, It's not like this or this. There is no or. <laughs> Being in Christ's kingdom is infinitely valuable. Nothing compares to it. That's the first thing to notice. Here's the second thing to notice that is the same in both parables. The cost is infinitely great. The cost is infinitely great. It comes at an infinite cost. And here's the thing. You and I don't pay the cost. You and I don't pay the cost. The king himself pays the cost. Soren Kierkegaard. This is, he was a theologian who lived in the, the long time ago. And he... <laughs> up in Scandinavia. And... He was trying to convey some of the truths of what we're, we're reading here and, and put it in a, in, a, in a way that you know, mere mortals can understand some of these concepts. And so he, he developed his own parable, and it's a powerful parable because he was, he was struggling with a people that just didn't, just didn't get how Christianity connected with everyday life. And it frustrated him. And, and Kierkegaard was, was this was this guy who was kind of like, it's, it's got to have relevance. It's gotta, you've got to feel this. It's the, this is not a cold, dry intellectual faith we're talking about. This is something that grips your soul. It, it takes you over from the inside and consumes you. And it's, it's, it becomes your total focus. And so he developed 
this little parable. It's the parable of a king in his region who has immense wealth, but he's unmarried. And this king is having all kinds of pressure put on him to marry. And princes and princess, prin, princes, sorry, <clears throat> princesses come from foreign lands and he gets to inspect it, but none of them grip his heart. Politically, oh, lots of good reasons to marry them. Intellectually, lots of good reasons to marry them. But none of them grip his heart. And this king is despondent that he must marry, but none of these, none of these women excite him. And so one afternoon he goes for a walk, takes off his crown and goes for a walk and he's walking through the town and not many people recognise him back in the 1600s and there he is and, and, he, and he sees a young maiden, just a glimpse and his heart whew, comes alive and he goes, there she is, there she is. How many men experienced that when you saw your wife for the first time? Be wise to put your hand up. <laughs> and and he, he goes back to the palace and he says, I've met my bride. And his advisors are excited for him. And, and they say, who is it? Which kingdom does she come from? No, no, no. She lives in the village. She lives in the village. Yes, she lives in the village. What does she do? I don't know, but she was carrying buckets. <laughs> Your Majesty, this will never do. Well, well, I'll go and propose to her. No, Your Majesty, you, you can't bring a commoner into the palace. But, but if I go as the king and, and marry her, she'll, she'll become royal. Your Majesty, if you go as the king with your entourage, you'll... You'll scare the living daylights out of her. She'll, she'll never want anything to do with you. And the king is pondering this for days, which become weeks, and he can't get this girl out of his heart, out of his mind, and, and he reasons she's more valuable to him than the kingdom. So this is what he eventually does. He takes his crown off for the last time. He renounces his kingdom. He takes off his royal robes. He puts beggar robes on. He goes to the village. He meets the girl. They fall in love. And they marry. Kierkegaard says... That's what God's done. He's taken off his crown. He's taken off his royal robes. He's taken on the appearance of a beggar. He's come down. He's come down to our level. This is what Christmas is about. And he's engaged with us. And we love him for it. So now let's spin these parables on their head. The first one, the hidden treasure, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and for joy sells all he has and buys that field. The man could be us looking for Christ, but the, but the man could also be Christ. And if you can think of it this way, it's a head spin 
Because if that man is Christ, he's found you. He's renounced his great wealth, heaven, and the glory of heaven. He sold all he had to come to this field and acquire you. You are the treasure. The man on search for the pearl of great price is Christ looking for the treasure, the pearl of great price, and you are it. And he has given up everything to redeem you. That's how you get into the kingdom. He possesses you. And, and I'm with Kierkegaard on this one. If that doesn't do something to your heart, you've got a heart of stone and you need to pray that thing out. <laughs> you need to have your heart set on fire for the king who would pay that kind of price just to be with you and then to have this message sent. You, with him, are more valuable than everything he has. Isn't that awesome? That's the kingdom that's the King's Speech. Valuable principles for living in the Kingdom of God. That's the third instalment in this series, The King's Speech. Next week, astonishingly offensive. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, The Discovery of Unimaginable Treasures, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania, 7277. For regular updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.